This is a remote voice podcast. I'm Daniel Silva, and this is the 16th in a series of letters that I'm writing from Arnhem Land. Um, I feel a bit rusty reading this letter. <laughs> um, I think because this week I've f- feel like I've been a bit lazy, or um, it's just in my in my downtime I haven't been so present. So got that kind of um, uh, sort of feel in my body like I need to kind of like shake out a rug or something. Um, so I think after this I'll go for a run. But um, anyway, that said, uh, this letter is uh, called Bedtime Stories. I'm not sure if I said that already. And uh, it's about to happen. So here we go. Half of the brain is dedicated to vision, which means the best time to tell stories is bedtime, when there's more room to process information beyond what's apparent, which might also explain why people faced with complex problems tend to think for a few seconds with their eyes closed. Whatever the case, bedtime is a good time to imagine. So this week we took seven kids to Yellowkun for an overnight camp. Yelakun is a beachside outstation, two hours from Gapuiak by four-wheel drive on sandy, unsealed roads. It's home to a solitary ranger and knowledge holder whom everyone calls the old man. There's an old schoolhouse, no longer in use, two bungalows, a simple shade shelter and four outhouses. In the centre of it all is a big white cross. It's a hundred metres from the cross to the beach, where we sat under the setting sun, with bellies full of kangaroo tail and damper, listening to the old man. He spoke of the land and surrounding clan groups, of the crocodiles and their habits, of the best times to fish, and of the sandflies that come out when the wind dies down. When he retired, the rest of us stayed by the fire with a billy and the rising moon. From what I could tell, the chatter was light-hearted, though of course I couldn't understand. One by one the kids went to bed until there were only two. Then the conversation took a more serious turn. Rose was talking. She was telling a story that much I knew. I lay on my back and relaxed into the rhythm and cadence of her words. Occasionally a brief debate would ensue, but for the most part she talked and everyone listened. I imagined she was telling a sacred story, tracing the features of the land in the movements of ancestral beings, casting the silhouettes of animals into the stars and teaching how to navigate by their eternal presence. I couldn't know, but I felt deeply the company of ancient knowledge and the comfort of family. When the billy hissed, I made to stand up, but Rose put a hand on my knee. Wako, she said, will you read this aloud? In her other hand she held a mobile phone, its light reflecting the undersides of her features, the tops of which were lit by the moon. Sure, I said, sitting up and taking the phone. I straightened my back and cleared my throat. Then I looked at the screen. At the top of the page was the heading, Book of Revelation, Chapter 7. To be honest, I wasn't completely surprised. In Gapuiak, one of the more unexpected, though not uncommon sounds, is amplified Christian rock music. 
It blasts every weekend from huge speakers outside some of the houses. This week it started at 7 o'clock in the morning on three consecutive days from a house at the end of my street. On the fourth day I learned that an old woman who lived in the house had passed away. The music was part of her palliative care. After she passed, the roads were closed for the hearing ceremony, the first opportunity for the family to grieve. All of the women sat in the yard of her house while the men, their foreheads smeared with white paint, gathered nearby. They walked towards the women in a tight group, singing and playing clapsticks. When their song was finished, the women started wailing and throwing themselves repeatedly to the floor. They hit themselves with rocks and sticks in places on their bodies corresponding with their particular kin relationships to the deceased. When I asked why they hit themselves at all, I was told that it helps to stop thinking and start crying. After the ceremony, everyone sat together, listening to Christian rock. A huge white cross leaned on the wall of the house. Most of the adults here went to Sunday school as children. The devout sit every night in fellowship circles, praying and reading scripture, while others partake in the regular vices. There's no longer any formal religious education, so kids learn mainly at bedtime. They fall asleep to stories about God. Which all goes to say, I wasn't surprised to be holding that phone. I read chapter 7 aloud. It's part of a highly symbolic, apocalyptic story written by someone called John at a time when Christians were under increasing pressure to worship their Roman emperor instead of their god. This is what it says. I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living god. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from the tribes of Israel. After this I looked, and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count, from every nation, tribe, people and language, standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels were standing around the throne, and around the elders, and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honour and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders asked me, These in white robes, who are they? And where did they come from? I answered, Sir, you know. And he said, These are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the Lamb at the centre of the throne will be their shepherd. He would lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Amen. I handed the phone back to Rose, then stood up and fetched the billy. Ngamma, I said softly while pouring tea. What does that mean to you?
Okay, and that's it. So yeah, I, that felt a bit rusty, but well, I hope that something of what that mystery was is was communicated in that letter, because it was ah, uh, it was just quite the moment actually. Um, yeah, so I hope I captured some of it. I hmm. I don't know, I don't want to say too much more because I'm not sure how much of what I'm saying is, is from the rust and how much is from the heart, you know, so. All right. Um, if for some reason you feel like uh, getting in touch with me or anything like that, my contact details are all on my website and um, that's danielsilver.work. Uh, there's a photo up there of um, me sitting with um, Rose and all the kids and everything on the beach. Um, there's a few photos up there and... Well, until next week, I think. <laughs>